0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's stand as we open the Word of God together. We're going to continue this series called The Life. Last week we looked at The Life Exemplified. Today we're looking at The Life Exchanged. The Life Exchanged. And I'm going to read one verse, and the message will come from this entire context in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read verse 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you for this profound, life-changing truth. And I pray that as a result of it, we will all live the exchanged life. Show us through your Spirit this morning and through the Word of God what that exchanged life is all about, that we might, out of gratitude, live more passionately for you than ever before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Many of you heard this story years ago of the father and, and, and son and, and, and the mother who had traveled into the city for the first time ever. Uh, this was many years ago, and, and they had never been out of the country. They go into the city for the first time ever, and they walk into a, a high-rise building for the first time ever. Well, the the mom has stayed in the car. She was kind of nervous about all of this, and and, and the father and the son walk into this high-rise building, and they look and they see for the first time in their life an elevator. And the doors to the elevator open up, and an elderly lady makes her way onto the elevator, and the doors to the elevator close. Then a few seconds later, the doors to the elevator open again, and a young, attractive lady walks out of the elevator the older man looks at his son and says, Boy, go get your mama. <laughs> well, have you ever wanted to uh, change your life or trade places with someone else? Ever wished you could be someone else? Ever ever wanted to, uh, maybe like uh, the, the magic in, in these Hollywood movies, you wanted to trade places with someone? Uh, Maybe someone wealthier, you wanted to trade places with them. Maybe it was because someone was younger and you wish for a moment you could trade places with them. The older I get, the more I wish I could just trade places with one of these youngsters just for a day. Maybe it's because someone is more popular. Maybe there's some young people here this morning. Maybe it's teenagers. You're like, man, if I could just trade places with them for a day and be a little bit more popular. Or maybe it's somebody who is healthier. You wish you could trade places with them. You know, it's not always a selfish thing to find yourself in a situation where you want to trade places with somebody. Think about when you saw a child or a grandchild that was hurting. Maybe they were hurting emotionally. Maybe they had been injured and were hurting physically. Maybe they were even at the hospital and in a lot of pain. And you found yourself as a, as a mother, or as a father, as a grandfather, as a grandmother going, I wish I could trade places. With you, We don't do that for our spouses, do we? We're kind of like, if you're sick, keep that to yourself. But with our children, with our grandchildren, especially the little ones, oh, if, I, if I could, I would trade places with you. Je- Jesus demonstrated that compassion to uh, a more astounding degree than most of us will ever be able to get our arms around, than most of us will ever be able to get our minds around. When he traded places... With us when he died so that we could live Uh, let's look at what the exchange life is all about in this passage in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 now in the first part of the chapter there's all of this assurance of the resurrection that basically teaches us that because Jesus lives because he rose again, we too will live in eternity. We will rise again through faith in him. Even before the resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We had a Bible study on that this past Wednesday night. But as we continue to read in this chapter, we learn something else. Not only do we live because Jesus lives, we live because Jesus died. Because he died, we have the exchange life. We get in on real life. What is the exchange life all about? Well, first of all, this morning, I want you to see in in this chapter that the exchange life is about a revealing picture. It's about a beautiful, revealing picture as God reveals his love for us. Look back at verse 20. He says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, though God were pleading through us. Paul is saying "There's, there's a message here. in in the resurrection, but also in the death of Christ that causes us to want to tell the world we are his ambassadors. What is it that has motivated the Apostle Paul to want to go and reach the world for Christ? We'll look back a few verses, starting with verse 13. Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, what he's saying there, some translations say, if we are mad, Paul is saying, listen, if we're crazy, then we are crazy for God. Paul was willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. He said, people may think that we are fools. People may think we're crazy, but we have something that motivates us to act a little bit different than the rest of this world. He says, if we're of sound mind, it's for you. If all of this is making sense, it's for your glory. If you're if you're beginning to understand this, th- then good for you. But man, if we're if it seems crazy, it's for the glory of God. In verse 14, he says, and here's where the picture comes in, uh, that, that the exchange life is a, a certainly a revealing picture. He says, For the love of Christ compels us. It's the love of Christ that moves and motivates us. And, and how was that love demonstrated? That if one died, verse 14, if one died for all, then all died. And he did die, verse 15, he died for all. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, listen, this is a truth that is so astounding that sometimes we just act crazy about it. Sometimes people think we're foolish, but he says we can't get over the fact that Jesus Christ died for us, or as verse 21 says, he became sin for us. That becomes a beautiful picture of God's love that moves us. As we saw last week, it was part of the exemplified life. He modeled how we should live, even in how he loved others, and loved them to the point of giving his very life. I was just sort of picking up where we left off, that example of love. It's theologically shallow to refer to the death of Christ only as an example, but it would be devotionally neglectful not to at least look at the example that he set when he did die on the cross. When in 1 John chapter 4, John is trying to encourage the church to love one another. You learned the song when you were a kid, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. We can't go around saying we know God, in other words, if we don't learn to love each other. But then in in, in verse 10 in that chapter, again, he, he shows us the beautiful picture that compels us to have love for people. He says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiation, the substitute, the sacrifice, the exchange for our sin. There was something spiritually taking place and something divine taking place when Jesus died on the cross. But humanly speaking, Jesus died a physically violent death. It was a literal death. It was a physical death. He did not just pass out from exhaustion and swoon on the cross. He died for you, and he died for me. And then we're left with this question often. When we think of the human aspect of his death, now, with our second point in a moment, we'll talk about the divine aspect. But when we look at it humanly speaking, we ask the question, who killed Jesus? Because there were certainly a lot of people that seemed to be blaming others, even in Scripture. And Scripture tells us, for example, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says, This Jesus, whom you crucified. And that was an indictment. The Jews, you know, John chapter 1, verse 11, he came into his own, but his own received him not. It was an indictment that they had been long awaiting their Messiah. And when Messiah came, they crucified him. Even... The fact that he rode in on Palm Sunday and they were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. The tone in the city changed by the end of the week. I personally think that it wasn't just that the same crowd necessarily turned on him. I think that we're hearing from a different crowd. I think we're hearing from the the momentum of the others that began to take over. And certainly there were those who were swayed and changed their tone in that process. But by the end of the week they were saying, crucify him. So Peter says, "This Jesus, whom you crucified, speaking to the Jews. But what about the Roman soldiers? They were not Jews, they were Gentiles. And they had perfected crucifixion, the most violent death ever known to man. They knew where to drive the nails into the nerves, in the hands, and into the feet. They knew how to keep you as long, alive as long as they could possibly keep you alive. And this was after they had scourged him the 39 stripes. This was after they had put the robe on him and the crown of thorns on his head. After he had suffered to a point that would have surely brought most of us to death. And they had ripped that robe off and and slammed him on a cross and nailed him and stood him up in mockery. They crucified him. And he died a violent, physical death that just from the human element that we can understand causes us to say who did this the romans was it gentiles was it the jews what was it pilate was it enough to say i wash my hands of all of this or, or was it me was it you he became sin for us So it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. See, Gentile Jew, it doesn't matter. We were all guilty of the death of Christ. This Friday evening, we'll look more intently into those statements he made from the cross. But when we understand what he was just going through, physically alone, it becomes even more powerful. You know, I hate those uh, mystery murder flicks that kind of leave you feeling unresolved when it's over with. It's one of those good whodunits, and you find out that the one that you thought was seeking to find out who did it, you find out they had some kind of split personality, and they actually are the one who committed the murder. They're actually the killer, and they're the one that was seeking the killer, and they find out that they have a split personality of some kind, and at the end of the movie, they actually are the killer, and the movie goes off, and it's all kind of unresolved. And when we investigate the death of Christ and we kind of look at the Jews and we look at the Romans and we look at Pilate and we look at the high priest Caiaphas, we look at all of this, and and, and the scary thing is we don't want to find out that it's us, do we? We don't want to find out that it's us because we like to think we're good people. We like to say, I'm okay and you're okay, everybody's all right. I I I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. And if you go and you witness to people, they will often tell you that they don't need the Lord because they are good. As Jeff was talking about, they say, we've got it all figured out. I don't need anybody else's help. Why do four out of five people in Madison County don't, uh, do not not attend church on a regular basis? We don't need any help. We're good people. They don't want to find out that it's their sin that murdered Jesus. It was their sin. It was my sin, your sin, that put Jesus on a cross. Most of us like to think of ourselves being good. There's no one righteous, no not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the motivation to live this exchange? Life is Christ's death. When we think about His willingness to die for us, it should the love of Christ should become a beautiful picture that motivates us, that compels us to live for Him. The exchange life is about a a revealing picture. And then the exchange life secondly is about a redemptive plan. God's redemptive plan. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And so verse 21 says, he made him, and literally, in your your Bible, most of your translations will say, and he made him whom you know sin, and then you see the two words, to become. And typically those words will be in italics because they're not there in the Greek language. Literally it says, he made him sin." For us he made him sin for us yes Christ was on the cross becoming our sin but he was sin on the cross and yet at the same time God was in Christ reconciling the world verse 19 that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He was considering Christ's sin for us so that we could consider ourselves righteous. The wages of sin is death, but it's more than the first death that we think of. It's more than physical death. And that's why Jesus' death has more than a human element to it. It has a divine element. It has a spiritual element. Jesus had to do more than die physically. He had to die the second death. He had to die spiritually. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. But verse 6 describes why that had to take place. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All of us. He laid our iniquity. He laid our sin on Him. And this is the mind-boggling aspect of Isaiah 53, his, His prophecy of what the Messiah would do. In verse 10, it says, and it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. That God's Wrath was being dealt with, that, that man was being made just and, and righteous before God because the Son of God, God the Son, was becoming sin for us. He exchanged his life physically, but he also exchanged his life spiritually. You say, well, what was in that cup of redemption? When Jesus was praying in the garden, if there be any other way than the cross, and, and this is why... It, It it rips my heart out to hear that there are so many, even in churches in America today, that will say, listen, I know the Bible says one thing, but there's a lot of different ways to get to God. Oh, there are so many other ways to get to heaven. And here's the Son of God in the garden in agony crying out, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup be passed from me. Why was the cup not passed? Because there was no other way. There is no other way than through the cross of Christ. What was in that cup? Revelation chapter 14, 10 and 11 says, Those who rebel against God will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. See, it's not the wrath of the devil that you fear when it comes to the cup. It's not the wrath of the devil that you fear fear when it comes to to hell and spiritual death. It's the wrath of God. It's God's judgment on sin. And when we are identified with our sin, then we are in danger of that same judgment. That means we have to change our identity. We have to have an exchanged life. And that's why Jesus went to the cross to drink that cup for us. Listen to a a preacher 200 years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He puts it this way, Understand then the sense in which Christ was made a sacrifice for sin. But here lies the glory of the matter. It was as a substitute for sin that he did actually and literally suffer punishment for the sin in all his elect. When I say this, I am not to be understood as using any figure whatever, but as saying actually what I mean for his sin Man was condemned to eternal fire when God took Christ to be the substitute. It is true that he did not send Christ into eternal fire, but he poured upon him grief so desperate that it was a valid payment for even an eternity of fire. Man was condemned to live forever in hell. God did not send Christ into hell, but he placed on Christ a punishment that was an equivalent for that. Although he he did not give Christ to drink the actual hells of believers, yet he gave him a quid pro quo, something that was equivalent thereunto. He took the cup of Christ's agony, and he put in there suffering, misery, and anguish, such as only God can imagine or dream of. It was the exact equivalent for all suffering. All the woe and all the eternal torches for everyone who shall at last stand in heaven, bought with the blood of Christ. Perhaps you say, did Christ drink it all to the dregs? Did he suffer it all? Yes, my brethren, he took the cup, and with one triumphant draft of love, he drank damnation dry. He suffered all the horror of hell in one pelting shower of iron wrath. It fell upon him with hellstones. And not that a powerful picture of what Jesus did to exchange his life? Our sin, every sin, is an assault and rebellion against God. Even the sin of pride that says, I'm not really that bad, is an assault and a rebellion against God. Not only was there a human element on the cross, Jesus died the second death for us. He died spiritually. We'll hear this Friday night, but when Jesus hung there saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because at that point He had become sin for us. He died to take our place. The exchange life is about that redemptive plan. Beautiful plan. Wonderful plan. How dare we be ever so ungrateful as to reject that plan? And finally, the exchange life is about a reconciled people. It's about a reconciled people. Verse 21 says that we might become. Let's not just focus on what we were. Let's focus on who we are today in Christ. That we might become. The word for becoming there now, the the first word, he made him sin. He made him something out of what he was. It's a different word for become here. It's the word "Gai," it's, it's the Greek Testament for the Hebrew, it's the Greek word that's equivalent to the Hebrew word when God created the world out of nothing. In other words, we didn't have anything good to work with, that we might become the righteousness of God. It would be like me being in a wood shop with a carpenter. I'm talking about a real carpenter, and I'm not one. That's why there's so many things around my house that haven't been fixed. It's just not my thing. I'm not good at it. If I try, I make it worse. I was waiting on my wife to amen that. But, but if I try carpentry, I just make things worse. And I can imagine me being in a wood shop and I'm kind of putting things together and, and, and I go to a master carpenter and I say, can you help me with this? Here's what I would imagine he would say. I imagine he would say, let's just throw that away and start all over. Can we just start all over? Can we just throw this away and start all over? See, we didn't have anything in and of ourselves worth working with. But the good news is, Jesus says, you becoming the righteousness of God is about your righteousness being as filthy rags. You don't have anything worth working with, but we're going to start over. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ by faith as you put your faith and your trust in what Christ did for you on the cross then His atonement applies to your life. His blood applies to your life. And by the way, the righteousness that was in Him from the beginning is now placed on you. That's the great exchange. God says you now have His righteousness. It's true that this is positionally so at first, but now you are in Christ and if you are in Christ, it will work its way out. There is an element of faith that we surrender our life to him. We trust in what he did for us. And then we work that faith out. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But then we work that faith out. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. There's a brand new you when you're in Christ. You're a new person. God has given you His Spirit as a guarantee, and He's given you a brand new nature, the nature of His Son, Jesus Christ. It can be said this way, no change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. You're a brand new person. You're not the same anymore. You are perfect positionally before Him. And your practice will grow into your position. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, after the the beautiful story in Philippians 2, 1-11, where he says, you know, let there be love and let there be unity, let there be this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it talks about his humiliation, that he humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given that name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. In light of all that, verse 12 says, now... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I used to read that and think it meant figure out whether or not you're saved. Work it out, fear and trembling. That's not what it's saying. The, the phrase working out is mining language, meaning God has put something new on the inside of you. See, the problem we have in the Christian faith is we often try to change people from the outside in. Well, if we can get them to behave right, dress like, look right, talk right, if we can change them from the outside in. Boy, that'll be good. That's not the way it works. Jesus changes us from the inside out. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new heart. And he says, as you begin to grow in me, you work that out. That's why Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed any longer to this world. Don't act like everybody else anymore. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Work out what's on the inside of you. Renew your mind in him. You're a new person. Now begin to walk in that. Reckon yourself, as Romans says, dead to sin and alive to Christ. In 2 Peter 3, verse 17, ends with this statement here. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that you've got that grace, that forgiveness, now that you've been made new, grow in that. Let that take over who you are outwardly as well. And 2 Peter 2, ends with this. It's kind of a warning as to what's going on if you're not growing in the grace and knowledge of Him. He says, but it happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Sometimes we wonder, well, you know, I saw a person, they said a prayer, they shook a preacher's hand, they got baptized, they went through all the motions, they even went to church for a while, but they just went back to the old way of life. And they, they, they go through some kind of religious ritual. They go to church. They say a prayer. They, but then they go back to the old way of life. And it's back and forth, back and forth. He says the problem is they're trying to change from the outside in. They're trying to turn over and you leave. They need to surrender and by faith say, God, I can't change my life from the outside in. I give it to you. You change me from the inside out. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That we might become the righteousness, the right being in right relationship with Almighty God because He took hell for us. He gives us heaven, even heaven on earth. The abundant life. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Have you exchanged your life for His He gave His life for us, and that love ought to compel us to live our life for Him, to give our life to Him. And that even begins with giving our sin and ourself and all that we are. say, but Pastor, even since I've been saved, there's some things. Listen, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're about to come to the Lord's table in a moment. And it's for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. But there may be somebody here this morning who hasn't done that. Or or maybe there's been a time where you came to know Him as Savior and Lord, but you know that you haven't been letting it work its way out in your life. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I want to ask our musicians to come. As I'm praying, you begin to prepare your heart. Do business with God as we prepare for the Lord's table.